Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN. That's the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, a.k.a. The Ant Hill. Today is Tuesday, April 3rd, 2012. This is episode 872 of the Survival Podcast. i got a great show for you today. I know if you saw the title, you might be like, oh, boring. It's not. You're going to actually really get a lot out of today's show, and it might save you a lot of money, and more importantly, it might save you a lot of pain, and more importantly, it might save you relationships in your family at some point. Uh, or if you happen to be the one that leaves others behind, it might save the relationships of your children if you actually listen today. Uh, I talk a lot about survival around here. Well, the reality is... The fundamental reality is we all only survive for a time. Uh, every single human being that has ever entered this place has eventually left it dead. So there is a, there's a, a finite level of mortality that we all have. Some of us, unfortunately, may be hit by a bus. Some of us will live to a ripe old age. But somewhere along the line, we're going to check out. And we want to have control when that happens. And if we lose our mental faculties, we want someone we trust to help with the decisions that need to be made at those points in time. And uh, we want things done in a certain way. And we want to preserve the relationships with our siblings and our, our you know, other family members. And if we are the one departing again, we want to preserve those relationships after we're gone. We don't want our children fighting over what we would have wanted when we're not here to speak for ourselves anymore. And it happens all too often. Uh, we also don't want the government to take any more of our money that we're handing down to our children than possible. And we want to make sure we do uh, everything we can to ensure the maximum amount of our wealth transfers to future generations. And sometimes we want to make sure that we transfer that wealth in a way that is more conducive to things. If you do happen to, unfortunately, uh, leave this world early and you leave a half a million dollars in the hands of an 18-year-old with no conditions, it's probably not a good idea. So today we're going to talk about all of that stuff. I'm going to have Mark Matthews with us in just a minute, who is a financial uh, financial and uh, tax attorney, uh, and we're going to talk about all that stuff. Uh, before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, Sawtooth Tactical. All the stuff you need to live that tactical cool lifestyle. Hey, Jeff, I'm waiting on my titanium spork, man. You told me I was getting one for free. Where's it at? Anyway, the titanium spork rules. So you guys got to check that out. I know it sounds kind of funny, but um, when I had one at uh, Self-Reliance Expo, it was a giveaway from Jeff. Uh, everybody kept trying to walk off with it, asked to buy it, what have you. I'm like, no, no, it's for a contest. It's awesome. Magpole Magazine's SOE Tactical gear, everything else you can think of to live that tactical lifestyle. Check them out. And they do give a discount to the member support brigade as well. So if you're going to do business with Sawtooth and uh, you're an MSB member, make sure you log into your account, get the discount code before you buy from them. Next up today, ready-made resources. You know, what more can you ask from a company to say, you know, here we are, this is our name, this is what we do, and then they do it. That's what ready-made does. All the resources you need, ready-made and ready to go. Point, click, buy. Great service, great pricing. Ship to your front door, uh, and you can expect that great level of service each and every single time. Now, what are you going to find there? It's you know ready-made and ready to go. Uh, Long-term storage food, tactical stuff, firearms, 
uh, 12-volt uh, appliances for use with solar and wind projects, solar and wind equipment. You name it, they got it. If you can think of it for prepping, it's there. Check them out today, readymaderesources.com. Uh, quick reminder, best way to make sure you're dealing with our sponsors, go to the survivalpodcast.com first. Look for the banner of the, the corresponding sponsor in the right-hand margin and click on it. I don't get any kind of kickback for that or anything like that. That's not the point. I just want to make sure you're actually dealing with somebody that I've personally endorsed and has been approved by my listener ad council. Uh, we have a pretty strict program. If you actually want to know how I vet my advertisers, go to my site, click on Advertise. And what you'll read there is not a gimmick. It's how we run the show around here, and it's why we have advertisers that have stuck with us for years. Uh, next up, you can connect with me, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Best ways to do that, survivalpodcast.com. Again, thesurvivalpodcast.com. Links there to all of my social media stuff. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, remember, Military Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, Active Duty, Prior Service, you can get a special discount. Simply email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Uh, put service discount or military discount or something like that in the subject line and then tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did at one time and I will send you the discount code. Thank you for your service to our country. I've been asked sometimes if I uh, give the discount out for fire, EMS type personnel. Generally speaking, yes, I do. Um, somebody might have asked me that. I'm hoping you're hearing me today. Uh, last night, and with using my iPhone for email, I might have deleted your email. If you email me again, I will take care of you. Don't think I've ignored you. All right, with that wrapped up, I'm ready to get into the main topic of today's show. Again, I know when you hear the title, you know, Financial Powers of the Attorney and Advanced Medical Directives, it might sound like this big legal mumbo-jumbo that I really just, oh, come on. No, folks, this is going to be important. And I've got the guy that I trust to tell you about this stuff. You know, I'm not, you know, I don't distrust attorneys in general. I have some good friends that are attorneys, but you know, when you if you put them a room of them together, I don't generally want to hang out with most of them. This guy I'd hang out with, and it's why I bring him on the show to hang out with you today. Mark Matthews is an attorney. He's focused on estate planning, elder law, and veterans law, along with firearms law. He's been practicing law for 12 years. He's a former major in the United States Army JAG Corps. Uh, he's an NRA rifle marksmanship instructor and one of the original 10 guys that started the Appleseed program. You see what I mean, guys? It's not your average attorney. Well, he's joining us today to discuss the need for folks to have financial powers of attorney, advanced medical directives so someone is appointed to make decisions for them if they're incapacitated, and so the family doesn't have to spend tens of thousands of dollars on court proceedings to appoint a guardian or conservator. He's also going to discuss with us the need for wills to avoid families tearing themselves apart over physical assets, the need for long-term care planning and possible Medicaid planning, along with the questions to ask a prospective estate planning legal firm to make sure you're making a good choice on your legal services decisions. And with that, hey, Mark, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you. Proud to be here. Well, um, you've actually been listening to the show for a long time, and uh, of course you're an attorney, and you're on today to talk about uh, estate planning and other things like that. Uh, I think this is kind of a big hole in in what we've been doing up till now because I've never I was just saying when we were off there that I've never really gone deep into this because I don't like to give legal advice because you know I'm not an attorney and that would really be a bad idea for me. Um, but as I'm looking at this and in some of the material you sent me, you're like more concerned with having powers of attorney and advanced medical directives than specifically having a will. And usually you hear everybody say, you know, you got to have a will, you got to have a will. I say it. 
Uh, why do you have more concern with power of attorney and advanced, advanced medical directives than a will? Well, Jack, it's because Americans are doing something that's really unprecedented in our history. They're living well into their late 80s and early 90s, which means, number one, they're outliving their retirement. Number two, they're racking up big nursing home bills or assisted living facility bills. But number three, where people, we're seeing people survive into a stage where they might have Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, or some other form of dementia, meaning that they can't handle their personal affairs anymore. They can't make rational medical decisions about what they want. Uh, so what we see happen a lot of the time is somebody will call and say, oh, mom's lost her mind. She's got dementia. I need you to draft up a power of attorney for her to sign. Well, it's kind of too late for me to do that if she's not competent anymore to make those decisions or sign those legal documents. So in a lot of states, what will have to happen is the family will have to pursue what's called a guardianship to have a court actually appoint someone to be in charge of making personal decisions for them, like taking them to the doctor and whatnot. And they'll have to apply for a conservatorship, which is where someone's put in charge of their financial business in their estate. As Just so I understand that, Mark, what you're sure, basically sure. saying is at the point the person has reached a state of dementia, they are thereby legally not capable of making a decision. Therefore, they can't make the decision to give you the power to make decisions for them. That's right. It's like uh, trying to buy automobile insurance after you've already been in the accident. It's just too late at that point. Got you. So please, please proceed. I was just, just wanted sure. to be clear on that. Sure, no problem. So when, when folks come to me, 90% of them say exactly what you said, which is, oh, I need a will. And I tell them, well, no, you don't. And they go, what do you mean, Mark? I thought you sold wills. No, I don't sell wills. I make sure you have a plan, and a plan's got a number of different pieces to it, just like an automobile engine's got to have a lot of different pieces to be able to work properly. And so to have a plan, you're not just thinking about what happens after death with my wealth, you know, who gets my stuff. You also think about how to plan for life to make things easier for your heirs or your descendants or your spouse or kids or whoever. So I tell folks estate planning is the process of creating a plan to manage personal and financial affairs during life and to manage and distribute property and wealth after death. So that's why I really get hung up on the powers of attorney, the advanced medical directive, is we just see that happen so often where, yeah, everyone dies, but so many more people are so much more likely to get dementia these days. And those two documents can save tens of thousands of dollars in attorney's fees down the road. So that kind of begs my next question for you then. So let's say that... Uh, I'm getting a little bit older, and my son comes to me and says, hey, Dad, we need to be prepared for this, and I agree. It makes sense to me. And he says he wants to set up power of attorney and advanced medical directives, and you know, I have to be in sound mind to do that, and let's say that I am. And then I'm thinking, but I don't actually want to do that. I don't want to give my son power over my estate while I still have the capability of doing it. So is there something that triggers that going into effect? That's an excellent question. There's two ways that a general financial power of attorney can be set up. It can either be set up to take effect immediately, or it can be set to take effect only when the person who's granting the power becomes incapacitated. Now, that, of course, brings up the issue, well, what does incapacitated mean? Okay. One way is to say if a court that has jurisdiction to do it declares you to be incompetent to manage your personal affairs, 
then only at that point would that power of attorney come to life and your son be able to execute it or whoever you choose as your agent would only be able to execute it then. Uh, second category is, and we see this a lot in Virginia, two physicians, each independent of the other, personally examine you and certify in writing that you're incompetent, you're incapable of making informed decisions. And uh, third, this is one that most people never think of, if you're detained under duress or disappear from your primary residence with no explanation for 30 days. Uh, and people say, well, what does that mean? Well, if you're detained under duress, as in you're down in the pokey because you've been arrested for something, the sheriff ain't going to bring you your bills and checkbook every month to pay them. I had one client who traveled a lot to Mexico, and I said, well, you need to be concerned about kidnapping down there. That's why we have the detained under duress provision. That would make that power of attorney spring to life, even though you're not medically incompetent. So there are workarounds if you don't trust your agent to have the power immediately. Well, and I think sometimes it's important for the agent as well, because like my wife and I have talked about doing this for her father, and one of our things is it's an awful lot of authority to have, and I'm not really comfortable having it until it's necessary. Right. And that's certainly something that a competent estate planning attorney would discuss, would suggest, and ask that question, and hopefully pose a lot of good questions to where the estate planning attorney has a conversation with the client to really determine what their needs and desires are, rather than slapping a one-size-fits-all solution on them. You mentioned the term agent. What's the role of an agent uh, okay. In a power of attorney and in advanced uh, medical decisions and things like that. And who should be my agent? Is that the person that actually has the power? That the agent is the person that has the power. Now, they can go out and do stuff in your name, but there's an urban legend I wanted to spell. You'll hear this urban legend that people say, oh, well, if you give your agent a power of attorney to act on your behalf, they can do anything. And you're just SOL if they do something that you didn't want them to do. Well, maybe as a practical matter, they can get away with looting your bank account or selling your house out from under you. But in many states, including Virginia, the agent under a power of attorney is actually a fiduciary. They have a duty of care, a duty of loyalty, and a duty of responsibility to whoever gave them the power of attorney, just like an employee would have a duty of loyalty to an employer. They might get away with it for a little while, but there are legal recourses in many states to be able to go after that agent for having exceeded their authority. Okay, it's not like oh, they had the power to do it, so now they did it, and it's tough, tough, tough cookies. It's they've. It would be the same as your your employee has the power to let's say purchase items for your company if they're in the purchasing department, but if they use that to purchase, I don't know, gold and have it mailed to their house they would be discussing things with law enforcement officials at some point. <laughs> exactly. Go ahead. Okay. You know, that's a perfect analogy talking about the employee misusing, for example, a purchase card or purchasing authority and then having to have a conversation with law enforcement. It's very similar with the power of attorney. The agent's got that duty of loyalty. Where we see this come up a lot is, and this is a fairly common scam, is an elderly fellow will be in the nursing home. He's got no family, and he uh, ends up becoming good friends with a cute young blonde uh, nurse who works there at the nursing home. Uh, she cons him into granting him a power, of, or granting her a power of attorney, and she then goes out and loots his bank account. And eight times out of ten, the family will say, "Well, I just assume there's nothing we can do because she had a power of attorney." Not true. 
best thing you can do is run, go find an estate planning lawyer who can handle a situation like that. Now, there is a different issue when it comes to the agent under the advanced medical directive, and these things go by different names in different states. Um, here in Virginia, an advanced medical directive consists of two components. One is a living will where folks can say, if I'm in a terminal condition and I'm incapacitated or in a persistent vegetative state, either don't give me CPR, don't resuscitate me, don't give me artificial respiration, don't give me a feeding tube, or do give me some or all of that. Uh, i give you an example. I had one client who uh, he believed that if his heart had stopped or if he couldn't breathe on his own, it was God's way of telling him to come on home. So he didn't want artificial respiration or CPR. But he believed that if he was still breathing and his heart was still beating and he refused a feeding tube, that would be tantamount to committing suicide, which he didn't want to do per his religious beliefs. So we were able to craft something specific for him. So that's the living will half of the advanced medical directive. The other half is what's called a health care power of attorney. It's just like a power of attorney that we were discussing a minute ago, except it's restricted solely to health care decisions. And it only comes to life when someone's incapacitated. And someone asked me once, Mark, what do you think is the most important document anyone could have in estate planning? I would say if you only had to have one, I would get the advanced medical directive because that's the kind of that's the thing that just tears families apart when you've got mom laying there on feeding tubes in the bed. Half the family's on one side of the hospital bed going, just remove it and let mom die in peace. The other half is going, no, keep mom alive at any price. If there's some clear guidance in advance, it prevents those situations because that's the kind of situation, Jack, where siblings who are in their 50s refuse to speak to each other ever again. Yeah, I, I, it's exactly what I'm thinking of. And, and then there's always, well, what mom would want or what dad would want. Well, when it's on, it's written down and dad signed off on it, well, we, we don't have that question anymore. Exactly. We know because he's, he's taken the time to tell us. And I, I think for a lot of people, it's a scary thing to face your own mortality. But, I mean, you kind of owe it to the people you're leaving behind to do so. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, I don't want to make that decision for somebody and try to guess what they would want. You know, it's a it's a it's a very tough position to be in. So even if you're willing to do what you think needs to be done, and even if the the the, the children you know of the deceased don't don't hate each other for the rest of their lives, I think there's a certain a level of removal of guilt because you know you did what you were asked to do. Exactly, and that's the point that I use with families is the. This is going to give your surviving spouse or your children the emotional and political cover that they're going to need to feel comfortable executing your decision. Because they're not making a decision. They're just executing your decision. So we've talked about a lot about why a will is not enough. Is there a place for a will? I mean, what, what do we put together if we want to put together a good estate planning, let's say, package and plan? Sure. Okay. Well, we've talked about the financial power of attorney and the advanced medical directive. A will basically does three things. Number one, who gets my stuff? Okay. Number two, if I have minor children and both parents are dead, who's going to become the guardian of my minor children? So important for families with young kids to have a will that discusses that. The third thing the will is going to do is who's in charge of all this? And in most states, that person's called the executor. Okay. The beauty of a will is in many states, your will can say, oh, by the way, my executor does not need to post a bond 
or if they have to post a bond, they don't have to actually put any money down on the bond. Okay, that's called surety. It's really nice thing to do for your executor to tell them, hey, you don't have to come up with several thousands of dollars and hire a bondsman in order to execute my will. So that's where a will becomes very important. Now, distribution of property, who gets my stuff? A will can do that, and a will can do that in one of two ways. Some states, such as Virginia, and I'm a Virginia licensed attorney, so I can't speak to other states, but Virginia had a blinding flash of the obvious a couple of decades ago, and they said, you know what, when somebody makes a will, they're not necessarily going to know who's going to get the piano, who's going to get dad's baseball card collection, who's going to get the classic Mustang. Somebody doesn't necessarily know all that when they make their will, and if they do know it but change their mind later, they shouldn't have to get a whole new will. So in Virginia, you can create a separate memorandum of distribution of tangible personal property to where you can get your will done, and then at your leisure later, you can say, okay, my oldest son gets the baseball card collection. Then a month later, you can tear it up and say, my oldest son upset me, so now my youngest son gets the baseball card collection. But you have to make sure that your will in Virginia specifically says, if I have a separate memorandum of distribution of tangible personal property, it'll control that's really important because what we see happen so much is I'll uh, just split it three ways between my three kids, and then people start fighting. Uh, there's one human phenomenon that you may or may not have seen in your lifetime, Jack, but when somebody dies, some people turn into vultures or they get sticky fingers and say, oh, mom would have always wanted me to have that, and they snatch it, or people start fighting. They just start, you know, I want this, I want that, no, I want that. Okay. I think it can often be, too, that it's not about money. Sometimes there's things that people have an emotional attachment to, and then it turns out that everybody has that same emotional attachment. Yes. I mean, imagine a situation where you have uh, a mother dies, has three daughters, all of whom want to have her uh, engagement ring as a memento. You know, what do you do? Yeah, yeah thanks. Like that? Makes perfect sense. Um, there's there's definitely things that I think in every family are kind of the heirloom or the thing that gets handed down. Yeah. And I think that if you have such a thing, you, you either do it before you die or put it in your will. Yeah. You mentioned something on custody that, that is intriguing for me. It doesn't really affect me at this point in my life, but at one time it was something we had to think about. What about a situation where you have minor children and you have a stepfather or stepmother in the arrangement, and the birth spouse wants to leave some level of custodial rights to the stepparent who's been part of bringing and raising this child up. Is there any recourse there, especially if the other parent is still alive? You know, that's a tough one, Jack, because a lot of times the state family law rules and domestic relations law are going to control that, and most of the states are going to say, uh, you know, surviving parents going to get custody unless they're proven unfit. So basically what you're reduced to most of the time is the person who's deceased can make a request in their will that the step parent still be involved in the child's life. But if the surviving parent is not willing to respect that, then the step parent could potentially petition the court to get some visitation based on the fact that they're a parental figure in the child's life or that lack of contact uh, would be detrimental to the child, particularly if it's a situation where the surviving parent hasn't had much interaction. But a will is not going to control that or drive the train on that. Let's do a different scenario then. We have a step-parent arrangement, uh, parent-step-parent. Um, the 
let's say it's the father uh, is the stepfather. The birth father is deceased. Mm-hmm. Does that change things? Or can an aunt or an uncle or somebody then come in and say, no, I have blood relations? Let's pretend for purposes of your scenario that the step-parent has not legally adopted the child, okay? Then what would happen is the surviving parent, or rather the second-to-die parent, the one who survived the other one but has just now passed away, could state that they want the step-parent to be the guardian. And unless for some reason somebody proves that the step-parent is unfit, then the will will control and the step-parent will become the guardian. Now, could other family members always contest that and say it should be blood marriage? Yeah, they can do that. Whether they're going to win or not is a different story. Usually, you know, if you're a step-parent and you've raised this little kid since he was one and he's now 10 and he's lived all his formative years with you, and then Aunt Jenny from Chicago says, no, he needs to stay with blood relations, the court's probably going to let you uh, have custody of that kid uh, just as the guardianship provision stated. So... Uh, I had a couple other documents real quickly that I wanted to touch on that are important to an estate plan. Okay, please do. One is a HIPAA authorization. Uh, HIPAA is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. Basically, the practical effect of that law is it makes it hard as hell for anyone to get copies of your medical records, even you. (laughs) And so it's kind of an unintended consequence. What we found is that a... An advanced medical directive will have a provision that says my health care power of attorney can get and receive my medical records and distribute them to third parties without the medical record holder, uh, you know, the hospital or the physician being liable. Okay, that's good. That's good to have in the advanced medical directive. But what if you need to go get records from 10 different places? Do you really want to be faxing? a 20-page advanced medical directive and living will full of personal information on your dying instructions to all these different places? No. So what we do is a lot of places will come up with a short form that basically is a release of information so that you could take that short form and fax that off to the five or ten different medical providers because nobody goes to one doctor anymore. You go to this doctor who refers you to this specialist who sends you here for a CAT scan and then you get blood work done by somewhere else. You know, before you know it, you're up to five different places you got to fax this to. So that's why that becomes important. One of the big documents that you see a lot of people work with, particularly when you're wanting to put future strings on money and how it's worked, is a trust. A trust is basically a legal box that you can put stuff into and the box can own things. A trust is not for everybody and there's lots of different types of trusts. The most common one we see is a revocable living trust. It's one you set up during your lifetime, and you can change it, amend it, destroy it. It's all up to you. Um, Here's why that becomes important. Number one is for tax planning uh, to maximize use of the federal estate tax exemption, which uh, if I don't if I don't tell you what the state or the uh, estate tax rates are, remind me before this interview is over, because I think it'll shock your listeners. But the other thing it can do is it puts future strings on money. Now, bear with me as I give you a real brief analogy. A will is like a gate and a fence. If you own a cow and you die and you leave the cow to your neighbor in the next farm over, the cow walks through the fence, the fence door shuts, it's now your neighbor's cow. He can milk it, he can turn it into hamburger, he can sneak out night and tip it, he can do whatever he wants to do with it. However, if it's a trust, what a trust would do is the trust would own your cow. You would assign your cow to the trust. 
And then after you die, your trust would contain specific instructions that carry on through the future because the trust continues on through time. And the trust will say, okay, your next door neighbor can come over and milk it twice a week. Uh, your next door neighbor can come over and do whatever. Okay. But it's those future strings attached that continue on through time that really show the difference between a trust and a will. I see people who have a couple million dollars net worth. They don't want to leave it all to their kids when they die. They want to maybe give them 25% of it when they die, then another 25% five years later and dole it out incrementally. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of there. You have a, a kid that's 28 years old that hasn't been very responsible, and you know you might die in a train wreck tomorrow. You don't want them to inherit $2 million because they haven't developed the maturity. And God help you if that kid's 19 when they get $2 bucks in their hand. Exactly, exactly. Can that money continue to grow inside that trust? So if I have that leveraged into some type of safe conservative investment in there, that way not only am I deferring the payout, but it can also it continue to grow prior to delivery over to my heirs. Absolutely, yes. And you can have provisions where the income can be distributed so that it basically acts as a money-making machine or the income can be just reinvested back in. So yeah. So I could have two million bucks making five percent at some kind of uh, an equity, uh, and my heir would get fifty thousand dollars a year out of it. But the, the the underlying value of the trust would remain constant. Exactly. And if you oh, yeah. if you set up a trust like that, you can provide all sorts of specific criteria for your trustee. You could say, my trustee shall distribute the income and can dip into the principal in his or her sole and absolute discretion. Like if a kid comes and says, look, I want to go to college, but I don't. It's going to cost more than my fifty grand allowance this year, and I don't want to take on student loans. Then you, as the grantor of the trust, could leave the trustee criteria. It says, okay, for medical or educational purposes, we could dip into that two million and pay for that stuff. But we can't do it to buy a catamaran and sell to Mexico. You could always ask. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we could specifically prevent that from occurring. Yeah, yeah. You could say, you could say, I only want my trustee to dip into the principle for the standard languages, health, education, medical, support, stuff like that. Okay. Now, you said a trust is not for everybody. Correct. So is there maybe an estate value before you worry about it? Is it like something, so if my net worth is like 50 grand when I die and I know that's what I'm going to be worth, it's just not worth it? Or are there, is there different criteria that we look at for that? Usually it's when someone is bumping up against the estate tax exemption ceiling, and I'll explain what that is in a second. Those folks who are worried about their estate taking a big tax hit from Uncle Sam, those are the folks who may look at establishing a trust, and within the trust they would have two different shares, uh, one that fills up first that is clearly going to be tax-exempt, and then the other that fills up second to go to support the spouse and so that you can maximize the exemption. Let me talk about federal estate tax for a second. Right now, every when you die, the IRS is going to calculate what's called your gross estate. Okay, It's not just money in the bank and the value of your house and your 401k. There's other stuff that will go into it, including, interestingly, any life insurance policies that you own. Right now, everything under $5 million will not get taxed by federal estate tax. And anything in your gross estate over $5 million gets taxed at 
So unless you're really super wealthy and have taken advantage of all sorts of crazy types of trust planning, the feds are going to take one-third of your gross estate over $5 million. That's not going to affect a whole lot of people. However, here's the scary part. At the end of this year, Jack, that is going to drop to $1 million. Everything over $1 million of gross estate gets taxed. And that tax rate is no longer 35%. It's 55%. That's, yeah. So so let's say I'm worth a million bucks. I kick over and I didn't set up a trust. The government comes in and takes $550,000 before my heirs get a dime. Well, no, only everything under a million dollars is still going to not get taxed. Oh, yeah. so I have to have two. If I, that's if I had two million, right? The first million gets distributed exempt. So it's like the uh, the tax rate thing where you you're, you go to a thirty five percent tax bracket, but your prior money is taxed at thirty three and, and so yeah. on down. Yeah. So you could then take and pour that second million into a marital trust within your trust because you can pass. Um, to your spouse, estate tax free. Let's pretend for this scenario you're, you're still married and your wife survived you. Okay, so we've clearly segregated half the money in somewhere where it's not going to get taxed. And then your wife could take advantage of her $1 million exemption when she passes away based on what's in the marital trust uh, portion. It, it's it's kind of hard to explain without me drawing a whole lot on a marker board, but it's for folks who are worried about, hey, I'm going to take a big tax hit. And here's the thing, Jack, pe people don't realize this, and they're probably not going to realize it until we get closer to the end of this year. Um, if you have a $250,000 house and you have $300,000 in your 401k, that puts you at what? Uh, 550,000. I went to law school because there was no math involved. Correct. All right. And you have a half million dollar life insurance policy on yourself, which a lot of folks with young kids will have. You so don't have a million fifty. Yeah. Okay. No, $500,000 policy. Okay. Yeah. So now that should put you up at what? 1050 somewhere around there. Yeah. Something yeah. worth of a million dollars. Yeah. You, you now every, your state has got to come up with. $25,000 to be able to pay the estate tax, okay, because you're $50,000 over the $100,000 limit. I, I thought there wasn't a tax on, on life insurance. Though. Ah, there's no income tax on, to the recipient, okay? Okay. So if your wife gets your half-million-dollar policy, she's not going to pay income tax on that half-million. Okay. But it is included in your gross estate for federal estate tax purposes, Gotcha. There's a workaround for that called an irrevocable life insurance trust where people will uh, make a trust. They will have that trust own a life insurance policy on their life. And so the trust owns it. The trust is the beneficiary of the life insurance policy. And it's irrevocable, which means once you set it up, you got to push it away and not have anything else to do with it except – every so often make a payment into it in order to pay the premium on the life insurance. That's where we start to get into complex estate planning so that people can reduce the size of their taxable estate. And I think we're going to see a lot more people in the future dying with a million dollars. We talk about uh, inflation and, and people losing what they have, but the reality is we have a lot of people that are of the baby boomer generation, big 401k. Some of them are smart and have protected that money now and gotten out of highly leveraged investments. Uh, move them over to IRAs at retirement. And as inflation takes over, it's like, to me, the government does things like, well, they say, well, we're, we're dropping it to a million dollars. And most people go, well, that doesn't affect me. 
But it would almost be like in 1960 saying, well, we're dropping it to $100,000. Mm-hmm. And today, everybody that invests in any way and saves money in any way ends up having a net worth eventually of $100,000. It's, it's almost inconceivable at some point that if you lived a relatively successful life, that you wouldn't hit that hurdle. Yeah. And time has shown us that that number keeps going up, and it's, 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 uh, its purchasing power drops but once they put the regulation at a million, it's at a million. Yeah, and the problem is, is that um, a lot of people may not be liquid enough to be able to fund whatever the estate tax is that they got to pay. Okay. So now instead of, of 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 Billy moving into Dad's house and and Tom taking Dad's other stuff, they've got to sell to pay the tax. Exactly. We see that happen a lot with family farms. They're asset rich but cash poor. So a $3 million family farm uh, goes to the heirs where they're going to be able to come up with million uh, fifty thousand in estate taxes. Okay? That's just kind of a general example. How much can you protect of that money by going with a trust? Well, I mean, you can't, is it a completely get-out-of-jail-free card if you do it right, or is it you know, only so much you can shelter? I mean, how, how does that work out? There's only so much you can shelter, Okay. And usually it's limited to whatever your exemption is. If, okay, so you would have a $1 million exemption. Your wife's going to have $1 million exemption. Combined, it's $2 million. Okay, and this is if we're talking if you passed away after December 31st of this year. This year, it's $5 million per person, $10 million combined. So, it's, you know, it's fairly generous right now. Um, where you really get into a trust protecting you from the state taxes, not really so much trust as irrevocable life insurance trusts, grantor retained annuity trusts, the really complex, not your j- basic generic, you know, Chevy four-door sedan of a revocable living trust. So, and, and that would be for somebody that's worth five, ten million dollars. Yeah. To go to that level of complexity. Yeah, and you know, the thing is they're going to spend a lot of money to get that level of complexity, but they're going to save their heirs hundreds of thousands of dollars in estate taxes, if not more. Okay. Well, you sent me a great document. Maybe we can even make it available to people called uh, 10 of the Most Gruesome Estate Planning Mistakes. And we've kind of touched on some of this, but I'd like to ask you about a few of them here. Absolutely. Uh, one of them, second one on your list, is having a, quote, I love you will. <laughs> and, and that's described as being one of the most gruesome mistakes you can make in your estate planning. Can you explain that? Sure. The I love you will, which is also called the sweetheart will, sounds so romantic. And it's what most people do. You know, I leave everything to my wife when I die. And my wife's will says, I leave everything to my husband when I die. And both our wills also say, oh, by the way, if my wife dies first and then I die, rather than leaving it to her, I leave it to the kids. Well, the problem is that under certain circumstances, depending on what your net worth is, it doesn't really take advantage of any tax planning that a trust could help with. Um, It all you see. It was explained to me once, and this is the best way I can think to explain it. Estate tax and other estate planning problems usually do not occur when money is moving sideways within the same generation, from husband to wife, wife to husband. Okay, It's when it goes downward through generations that estate planning issues can occur. So if everybody's just leaving everything to each other, and then the last to die leaves everything to the kids, not only have you not necessarily done any proper tax planning, 
but you haven't put any future strings on that money. Okay, let me give you an example. My wife dies first. She leaves everything to me. I get remarried. I, I blow all the money on my new wife, okay, and don't save any of it for the kids. My wife had an expectation that I would leave the kids an inheritance or pay for their college or whatever, but instead I blow it all on my new honey. That's completely legal and legit as long as I'm supporting my kids while they're minors. So Sure, because you inherited the money. It's yours. Exactly. It's mine. I can do with it whatever I want. And I actually have, when I give a slide presentation on this, I have uh, <laughs> the first example I use as a tangible example is, you know, here's here's Helen, your husband's new wife after you die. She thinks that all the money that uh, that you thought should go to your grandkids ought to be spent on her for Italian vacations, you know, through through use of a trust, even if you don't have a large estate, you can put those future strings attached on money. I actually even had a client ask me that yesterday. We were setting up their trust. Client asked the question, um, what if my wife gets remarried after I die? Well, she can spend what's in the trust on her and on her new husband, but they can't change, okay, who gets what, you know, after the second spouse passes away. So, that's the beauty of a trust if you have concerns about that type stuff. So another one on your list is um, you, you say that owning property jointly can be a problem. Why is that an issue? Okay. And I'm going to get down into the tax weeds for a second on this. Um, what a lot of people will do is you've got one parent that's alive. The parent has one adult child that's alive. The parent does not want the house to go through probate. Probate is the process by which the probate courts will make sure that your will is followed and collect probate taxes. Okay. If you have a joint tenancy with right of survivorship, meaning let's say you and I both buy a house together, Jack, and we're joint tenants with right of survivorship. That means we both own it. And once you die, it's 100% mine with no real paperwork needing to be done legally. Okay, we change the deed, but it becomes my house. Here's the, parents will want to do that with their kid so they can say, oh, this will keep the house from going through probate. As soon as I'm dead, the house is yours. Here's a problem with that. When you buy a house and then later on down the road you go to sell it, you might have to pay some type of tax on your gains on the house. If you inherit a house through a will or through a trust, your basis in the house, meaning, you know, whatever your, quote, purchase price is, is whatever it was worth when you inherited it. So if you buy a house for $10,000, later it's worth $100,000, and you die and your kid gets it, the kid sells it for $101,000, he's only got $1,000 of gain. Okay? You follow me so far? Absolutely. All right. But if you and your kid, let's pretend you're older, your kid's an adult. If you decide to make your kid a joint tenant with right of survivorship rather than having him inherit through the will, he does not get that stepped up basis. OK, so he could end up paying a lot more in tax on his sale of the home, depending on what it ends up ultimately selling for. And that that can apply to other different types of things, not just homes, but, you know, RVs, yachts, whatever you want to call it. So people, the layperson's first reaction is, I'll just make it joint tenancy with right of survivorship because that's the cleanest, easiest. 
And I'm like, yeah, but there's tax consequences that can bite you in the butt if you're not careful. Well, that makes sense. Another one you have here, and I think we've kind of touched on this already, but I just don't know that there's a solution to it. Number eight is dying in the wrong year. So if I die in the wrong year, I'm screwed. What do I do about that? <laughs> uh, financial planners will tell you that 2010 was a very good year to die because there was no federal estate tax that year. Um, uh. So what that means is it's basically a tongue-in-cheek way of saying you've always got to stay on top of what the tax rules are and what's going on with the estate tax. Uh, this year, and I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, this year is a much better year to die than next year because this year only uh, everything over $5 million gets taxed. Your first $5 million of your estate doesn't. Next year, it's only a million-dollar exemption. Okay, So it's important to stay on top of the tax law, and it's important to revise your plan. And that's kind of one of the other things I've got on that sheet, uh, which is uh, sticking with an ineffective or incomplete plan. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to touch on that very briefly. Sure, please do. Sure. Here's a conversation that I have with 50% of the folks who enter my office. Do you have a will? Yes. Where is it? It's in my safe deposit box. Who's the executor of your will? My oldest daughter, Sally. Does Sally know that? No. Does Sally know you have a will? No. Does Sally know that your will is in the safe deposit box? No. Does Sally even know you have a safe deposit box? No. Well, guess what there, Mr. Client? You have a will, but you do not have an executable plan because nobody's going to know where to look for the will. Nobody's going to know you have a will, and it, they're gonna, it's going to be just as if you died without a will, like you died in test state, and all of a sudden state law takes over in terms of who inherits instead of your wishes and the will driving the train on that. So we see that happen a lot. That's why for my clients, they get an estate plan, and instead of the will and the power of attorney being stuffed in an envelope, they're actually getting it in a three-ring binder that says a state planning portfolio on the spine. And I tell them, tell the executor of your will where this is. Tell your power of attorney holder where this is. You know, it's on the bookshelf in my bedroom across from my bed. Let somebody know so they can easily pull it off the shelf and start executing it. Uh, number 10 you have is not understanding that the biggest problem is not the IRS. So we beat up on the government because I think you and I both love to do that because they give us plenty of ammunition. Oh, yeah. But in the end, sometimes that's not the biggest problem with not having your estate planned. No, it's procrastination. Yeah, people don't want to do it. They, they just – it's morbid. You're talking about death and taxes, which are two of the most morbid things you could talk about. You're forcing people to confront their own lack of immortality. And people want to push it off. I tell you, though, I have never had anyone say, gee, I started estate planning too early. <laughs> the problem is people wait and wait, and then they're dead and they have no will. Or they've got Alzheimer's and they can't sign that power of attorney or advanced medical directive, and the family's got to go to court to get themselves appointed. And Lord help you if that gets contested because – Brother number one thinks that he ought to be the guardian and conservator, and sister number one thinks, no, she ought to be it. And it's, you know, it ends up in a situation like two farmers fighting over a cow. One farmer's pulling on the horns as hard as he can, one farmer's pulling on the tail, and the lawyer's in the middle milking it for all it's worth. Yeah, that definitely happens. So, I mean, if people are in your area and you're in what, Richmond, Virginia? Correct. 
obviously, if they need this kind of services, you'd be happy to provide it, and I'd be happy to recommend you, and I'll make sure that we put a, uh, a link to your website in the show notes today. But there's a lot of people that might be in Delaware or Florida or Texas that might also need good estate planning, and you can't help them because you're not licensed in Florida. So they're in the, the boat now. Okay, I've realized these are all important things. What are the right questions, or how do you find someone like yourself that really is good at this? Because the last thing you want to, to bring up a classical term I use is an ass clown doing your, your estate planning. We really do not want our estate planning done by an ass clown. So what are my anti-ass clown questions to make sure I've got the right person or the right firm to do this for me? Sure. Or are there certain certifications or things like that I can look uh, for? What? I'm going to first address how to find someone. Uh, most state bars will have a lawyer referral service that lawyers will sign up for, and they'll check a number of boxes on a sheet saying, I do this, I do that, I do the other. You call the state bar referral line, and they can give you the names and phone numbers of some of those folks. There is an organization called Wealth Council that I'm a member of, which, if I recall correctly, it has a search database where you can go and type in your city and state and it'll tell you who are members of Wealth Council. Uh, Wealth Council is a service that provides a lot of educational information for attorneys like me, a lot of continuing education, seminars and whatnot, so we can be on top of our game. So let's pretend you've done one of those two things and now you're basically interviewing attorneys. Okay, You want somebody who is doing it as a very large portion of their practice. You don't want to be the guy who got you out of that DUI ticket. Oh, well, Will, yeah, sure, yeah, I can do that. No, you really want to find somebody who focuses heavily on that area of law. Next, you want to find out if they're doing more talking or doing more listening when you sit down and talk with them. You know, are they a blowhard that's just trying to shove a one-size-fits-all on you, or are they actually listening? Are they taking notes? Are they hearing? Are they restating? I was trained a little bit as a uh, professional career coach, so I'm real big on restating. So if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying your goals are is da-da-da. Make sure they're talking goals and trying to find out your goals and not just throwing processes or products at you. That's my biggest pieces of advice. Very good advice. And I would think that that would mean that anybody that says, we have our standard estate package you know, slot A, tab B, just fill it out here and we'll do it for a few hundred bucks. That would probably not be a good idea to do business with that person. Well, it it depends on your own situation. Some people, that's all they need. If you're a young single guy, no kids, that's probably sure. all you need. Um, but for most folks, you know, blended families are becoming the standard instead of the exception these days. Uh, most folks are going to need a couple of levels higher than that. And they're going to want to go with someone who says, you know, hey, come in and let's talk. Tell me what it is you're looking for. Tell, tell me what your, you know, as we used to say in the military, commander's intent. What's your end state? And I'll figure out how to get you from here to there. Sure, sure. And if folks do want to get in touch with you, they can go to your website, which is? It's uh, www.thematthewslawgroup.com. Matthew spelled with two T's. So it's www thematthewslawgroup.com Very cool. I appreciate you being on the air with us today. I think you've probably got people thinking about something that, frankly, they don't like to think about, but they really should be thinking about, and the time to think about it is probably now, not later on. Correct. Hey, thanks for having me on, Jack. Keep up the great work. I appreciate it. 
All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Mark Matthews, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they... Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares.